You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, the online component of the City Lights events calendar. As is customary before each event, I'd like to remind everyone we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to offer our respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Today, for our matinee event, we are delighted to have back with us Adrian Marie Brown in conversation with Dream Hampton. We are celebrating the publication of the second installment of Adrian Marie Brown's Grievers trilogy. It's called Maroons and it's published by AK Press as part of their Black Dawn series, which highlights works of radical speculative fiction. Adrian Marie Brown utilizes her background as an activist rooted in the city of Detroit to craft a story that addresses survival in an urban landscape in the face of a devastating future capitalism. So it's a tribute not only to the will to survive, but also the importance of community building and a collective reckoning with loss. Adrienne Marie Brown is a writer, activist, and facilitator. She produces multi-genre writing that is informed by and engaged with radical imagination and transformative justice. She is the author and editor of several published works. These include Fables and Spells, Octavia's Brood, Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism, and We Will Not Cancel Us. Her fiction has appeared in The Fumnambulist, Harvard Design Review, and Dark Mountain. Maroons is her second novel. So joining her today is Dream Hampton. We are so honored to have Dream with us today. Uh, Dream is an award-winning filmmaker, producer, and writer. Warm welcome to both Adrian Marie Brown and Dream Hampton. Welcome to City Lights. Thank Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having us. Hi, Hey, love. It's so, what up to Virgo? What up though? (laughs) It's such an honor um, to be talking to you about this beautiful book. Thank you, my love. I like that you're on the cover of it. I am. I couldn't believe that my little blurb made it to the cover. Um, The one and only. Yeah. And when I look at, you know, put it side by side with Grievers, yeah. it, it's basically kind of, well, it's not the same set of homes, but they they seem to, they're definitely in relationship with one another. Yeah. Um, and the background and everything is familiar as a native Detroiter um, who has been in community with you in Detroit. I would amend Peter's intro to Maroon's and say that, yeah, it, there is community in these really small um, cadres, um, mm-hmm. but it's also a lot about loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, well, I mean, let's just get into it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't wanna project, one of the things I was thinking as I prepared, to talk to you about this book was, you know, having a relationship with you, Adrian Marie Brown, mm-hmm. and seeing some of you in there. Some of it is just goofy, like Legoland's is the best movie ever. <laughs> 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 or like 
some riff on freaking Mariah Carey. I'm like, oh my God, this is Adrian being Adrian. <laughs> <In there. laughs> um, and then some of it is that thing that we do when we know something. It, it doesn't even have to be um, someone that we know as well as you and I know one another. It can be having some idea about someone's bio, you uh-huh. know? And so then, so I think that people who know you have um, even just professionally or, you know, by proxy or watching you in public have seen you give tribute to and, um, you know, just hold up as an ancestor charity um, Hicks. And I think even when I was reading, reading Grievers, I absolutely um, thought that comma was based on charities Hicks character. Okay. Um, can you and talk? I'm working on the third book now and charity comma has come and been like, I'm actually the star of this whole thing. <laughs> and so like, before you finish, you need to make sure that that's clear to everyone. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I know, I know, but yes, obviously. Well, um, she's so <laughs> present in both books, you know, yeah. and, um, and I love an origin story. <laughs> they ruined it this third season, but Warner Brothers was doing has been doing a really good story about Alfred the Butler. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I like it. Exactly. So let's go back like before, you know, Bruce was even born. Mm-hmm. Uh, which obviously makes me think of the love letters um that Dune. I'm getting right into characters, so people right. Who haven't read the book, you will become familiar with, fall in love with these characters, um, wholly of Adrian's imagination. But again, there are times when I felt they were inspired by people. Um, so the love letters, like ghost inspir- inspirations, like I'm like, it's kind of like, I think having loved and lost all these people, I'm like, did I know them? How well did I know any of these people? Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel like the pandemic actually the experience of the pandemic for me has been very much like, who do I really know? Mm-hmm. Like, do I know people enough to like, be like, let's quarantine together or can I trust your practices or just what does it mean to actually know anyone? But I feel like what my impressions of these people were is what kind of fleshes out these ghost figures. And yeah, a lot of, it's been really beautiful to get to be with them for the writing process. Cause I'm like, here you are again. Well, that brought up a couple of things and I'm going to do something we do sometimes in facilitation, which is stack a couple of questions. I mean, one of them, when you talk about possibly in this third, well, in this third series, doing a deep dive into comma, we got a bit of that when Dune came across that tin box of letters between comma and Brendan that she's reading out of sequence, um, but that are so tender and filled with like trepidation and we can get into that. Um, but then there's this larger question and I didn't know if you wanted to to talk because it seems like so much, you know, I made fresh water, I made two films during quarantine and you find yourself having to talk about COVID again and again. Yeah. Um, but you obviously wrote these during COVID. I'm imagining Grievers had to have begun before COVID. Yeah. So the Grievers and Maroons 
the core storyline started back in like 2012, 2011, 2012 was when I started outlining, started writing the stories. And then as people died, they kind of worked their way in of like, here's something I would want to bring. But it's been interesting because I had already turned in the Grievers manuscript, like the draft manuscript before COVID started. And then COVID happened. And the biggest thing I learned during that was like, oh, I didn't think about face masks. <laughs> so like, I was just like, oh, my pandemic didn't have no face mask. They would have a face mask. Like, okay. So there's stuff that you learn from being in person with it. But the loneliness, like to me, Detroit is a city that has been through so many plagues. And it's a place that has been through a lot of uh, loss. And that like ghost town feeling that a lot of people experience maybe for the first time during the pandemic, I'm like, Detroit has gone through periods of that, or if you drive around at a certain time of night, you you get that energy already. Um, and you know, Grace always talked about that Detroit is what the rest of the the world has to look forward to, the rest of the country has to look forward to. Um, so yeah, a lot of it predates, and then it's been both exciting and frustrating to have to then put it in relationship with COVID. And um, yeah, we're both kind of pop culture junkies on the low. So, I mean, my reference to that and thinking about you creating this, this plague, the H8, you know, disease that seems to target um, Black people. We have this doctor, Natasha Rogers, who thinks that it might be a conspiracy, a man-made conspiracy um, against Black people. We have a disease that has been contained by borders. These borders are historically what separate Black Detroit from larger segregated um, Metro Detroit. Um, we used to talk about it as Black and white, but Metro Detroit, Birmingham and Bloomfield is where a lot of um, Indians from the Indian continent live, Pakistani, different professionals. So it's it's kind of like the non-Black border <laughs> um, to Detroit. There Again, when I was growing up, it was a simple way that we talked about it, but um, Detroit has changed a lot, yeah. but that border remains the same, this eight mile border. Um, so I think about Station Eleven. I think about like, you know, this piece of work, this television series that also came out, um, yeah. you know, at this, it was clearly written before COVID, but was anticipating. And that always makes me think of not just zeitgeist, but things that are in the air, yeah. you know, that back in the days, um, what was his name? Edgar Casey. They used to, do you know about his work at all? It's a about, little bit like not. Yeah. Anyways, based on these dreams that like thousands of people were having in different parts of the world and they would send him maps of what they thought the world would look like in the 21st century. And it basically, it, when you look at the Casey map, it's that map where like the Great Lakes just goes right through Michigan and divides it in half and whole parts of like Europe are submerged. But these were dreams that people in other parts of the world were having wow. of a dystopic future um that hopefully we can avoid but it, it you know it reminds me of this idea that there were artists like yourself who were anticipating COVID before it even happened absolutely I mean I, I also think that any of us who've been paying attention like if you're looking at climate if you're looking at black people if you're looking at like bad governmental decisions like if you're looking at the trend towards zombie apocalypse you know like I think people are trying in so many ways to speak to being sentient enough to tell what's going on and emotionally aware enough to feel the changes that are coming. And 
I think a lot about Octavia because she was like, I'm trying to write this as a warning. I don't want it to be the world that happens. Um, for me, I'm trying to write like for it feels like a real exercise in my own hope and hopelessness dance. Um, because I feel like, you know, when I was a young activist, I was like, we're gonna fix it. We're gonna figure this out. Like we can see what's coming and we're just gonna get the movement. And the movement is just gonna movement it and it's gonna be fine. Right. And yeah. right. And then I think my own cynicism has come in as I've gotten older, which has been really tender to, to recognize and to be like, oh, bitch, what are you, who are you? What, are you, what is this feeling of like, oh, humans are not that great. And a lot of humans really don't want to change and really want to be sheep and they want to be followers. And like, inside of that, what happens? And so for me, Maroons has been like the whole Griever series, but like Maroons was like this little dance of like the part of me that is doomed. That's like, I just want to stay in my house where everything is safe and everything has order and I'm figuring out my survival and like kind of fuck everybody else. And the part of her sort of represented by Dawood, that's like, we've got to go, we've got to see, we've got to connect actually. And there's more people out there. It's not just us. And, you know, I think I'm becoming a very like hermity, introverted possibly even crotchety older lady. <laughs> it's just happening in me. Um, <laughs> but I want a place for us in the future. And I feel like this is something that you and I have always talked about is like, what are the places for those of us who are not content? What are the places for those of us who have a critique about what's happening? And so I wanted to, you know, I'm trying to carve out space for all of that inside of it. I don't want to give people like, here's the easy, hopeful resolution to it all. It's like, there's not one. There's just, there's like, apocalypse after apocalypse and then there's people who survive and here's how they do that and um you know right now we're in this COVID moment where people are still dying all the time and then a lot of people are just moving around as if everything's normal that part of the story also feels really interesting to me that like what's happening in Detroit feels like it would be the crisis that everyone in the entire world would have to stop and pay attention to but now we know that so many crises are concurring that are all at that scale, that it's kind of even the magical otherworldly things we don't really have the time and attention for anymore. And that's why we've always talked about this principle about centering the most vulnerable amongst us. Like if you, in a conversation about race and gender, center black trans women, then you will complicate your analysis yeah, it'll just blossom up because, yeah, not to use folks as like specimens of tragedy, but there's tsunamis of issues that um, certain populations are have to, having to deal with that aren't separate from one another that can't be. Yeah. You have a phrase that I always credit you of using. You talk about the golden age of global warming. <laughs> you used to talk about it. it, used to be cute. Now it's not when- now it's when like, oh, we're in it. Oh shit. We're in it. It's not the golden age. But um, I'm on page five. Do you have your book in front of you? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, do you mind reading- um, the uh the second <laughs> the second graph that begins winters yeah I can read that um let's see okay winters used to be so bitter she remembered weeks of snow days she remembered ice storms and blizzards 
the season was much milder than it used to be. Each year, the window of below freezing temperatures shrank drastically, resulting in less snow, more sun. Her mother, Kama, the first casualty of the H8 virus, used to alternate between calling this the golden age of global warming and telling Dune how the floods would proceed in inland sea. We're gonna be Northern Cancun before it's all over. Maybe, someday. Winters now were wet, marked by sideways rain that cut like ice and snow that didn't commit to the ground. And you're talking about, you know, a Detroit, a landscape literally that has been so altered. And on the next page, you yeah. talked about wild pheasants in a precinct window, <laughs> which is another kind of uh, animal that you invoke in your writing a lot when it comes to Detroit, because we literally, have um, <laughs> we have them because the grass has grown so tall in um, places where houses were in our abandoned buildings. Um, I love another sentence. I, I, I'm really in awe of your writing and I love how you as a poet <laughs> and, oh, and your Jane novel. Hampton. Okay. <laughs> and, and one of those um, lines happens on page six where you talk about she felt the loneliness that comes from being unwound from the superstructure of humans and their rhythms, the howling tunnel of being unknown in her inner thoughts, the madness of crafting all of her ideas with no one to critique, collaborate, or cheer her on. And this is where, you know, we get. First of all, I love this idea of a superstructure of humans that we all yes. thought we existed in pre-COVID. But here we have Dune, who's you know dealing with the get the the ghosts of her family, of her grandmother Vivian, of her mother, of her father. Um, but this idea that having other people to critique and collaborate, and of course that later becomes Dawood for her, even before she meets him. Um, but talk to us more about the interiority of this novel. Yeah, I mean, you know the writer Tanana Reevdu? She's an yeah. incredible yeah. Black horror sci-fi writer. And I took a workshop, a writing workshop with her. And Grievers was one of the stories we workshopped back in 2014. And she was like, this is all happening like in a white room. Like there's no world, right? And I was like, yeah, I'm so deeply into <laughs> the need I have to talk about just the interior landscape of someone who is dealing with complex grief, grief of location, grief of community, like an idea of community when you're like, oh, that idea, you know, that many of us were raised with, like my community will come from like finding a partner and making a family and the people that I work with. And like, this is how my community is going to form. And I think for a lot of us, there's a grief of that's not happening. <laughs> you know, um, I feel like we're in this precipice time where there's, for me at least, I'm like, I don't necessarily want that nuclear life, but I, the thing that I do want is not necessarily something we're all skilled or have capacity to do yet. So I have a lot of people who are like, we all want to live in a compound, but everyone's compounds is in a different location right now. And we don't know how to get to each other. And so I, I've been like, just thinking about that and bubbling on that and, and really reckoning with my own loneliness as someone who can like taste and feel and see and smell a future where we are in a different relationship with each other and with nature and then waking up each day and, and then walking back out the door into this world. So I wanted to give people that, that like inside Dune's world, she's figuring out how to generate abundance. She has her dog friend. <laughs> she's like, I know how to, 
I know how to be with myself. And then she reaches a breaking point. And I think that even for me, like, I'm like, I, I can spend so much time alone and be so satisfied. And then I reach a breaking point and COVID really pushed me to my breaking point. Like I had this period where I went for three months with no human contact, like no one I knew to hug me because I was like, I'm just going to go to Hawaii and it'll be fine. And I didn't think about what it might mean to be that far from anyone who I knew and trusted. And, you know, there's that Hafiz line. It's like the need of God. (laughs) I felt like I was like the need of community for me is that, that spiritual practice and that need for community became so loud, but it's inside. And it's like, not anyone, not just anyone will do. And I think that's also really hard to talk about is how to find the company that drops your shoulders and unclenches your belly. And where you're like, I can say these really random things. So that's why Dawood, when Dawood shows up, he, for, for folks who are like listening in, Dawood is first a voice on the radio. He's like someone who has decided to start a radio show by himself. And he kind of goes into these trance-like states. And he, for me, is evoking this poet, David Blair, who was an incredible Detroit iconic poet and who would hit these trance states on the stage where you would just watch and surrender. You'd have to just surrender like to whatever it was. He was, he was like, I'm taking you here and we're going to go talk about Michael Jackson. I'm taking you over here. And we're going to talk about Detroit. I'm like, Oh, maybe everyone has that unhinged place or, or suspects we have that unhinged place in us. And can you find community where you can be unhinged? And I will say that's one of my favorite things. (laughs) Like for the 12 years that I was in Detroit, I felt like I met a lot of people who were like, I'm a little unhinged and I'm giving myself permission to do that because no one's looking at us here. We're not New York. We're not LA. Like we can make art in a bunker. We can make art in a factory warehouse that was abandoned. We can make art in the back yard of our grandfather's house. Like we're coming undone though, a little bit. Like we can't quite decide if we want people's attention or we want them to turn away. And yeah, I wanted to pull all of that out of me and put it somewhere where other people I don't know, could dance with it, <laughs> you know, dance with it a little bit. I, I'm a functioning unhinged person, right? Yeah, That's yeah. also the thing is like, I can pull off like social interactions, but that doesn't mean that that whole debacle isn't happening. <laughs> I wanted to read um, something from the Everything is the Everything Awesome Circus, which is, um, I wanted you to read something from (laughs) from the Everything Awesome Circus, which is Dawood's pirate radio um, show. And I love that you, you know, you invoked mesh, uh, like there's just things that, yes, (laughs) things that we, um, that we talked about and, you know, we helped kind of, you know, give birth to in Detroit through- Allied media projects and the conference that happened. I'm coming. Yeah. Up. I have so many things. I I even have the McAllen like underlined. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. you. Um. But anyway, because you because Dune is goes out on this mission, leaves her home to try. I imagine that like Jizo, and we should talk. Of, is it Jizo or Jizo? Jizo. Jizo. That I imagine that we're, we're gonna 
get to Jizo also. Um, mm -hmm. But like Jizo, Dune kind of forages. She leaves her home when yes. she has to. She doesn't have to go out looking for Dune, but she does. Yeah. Um, she has some false starts. She looks for him in the children's hospital. When she finally finds him, there's some disappointment. Um, and we'll get to that. And I also want to talk about how he reminds me a bit of Baraka in Parable <laughs> the Sower. But I'm trying to look for a you're good... on to me. Am I on to something? Yeah, you're on to it. <laughs> I'm on to you. <laughs> you know, I'm so in love. So Baraka, um, so the idea of like being someone who's queer coming across a man who can catch your attention and draw you in and make you feel safe is very intriguing to me, right? Like I'm always looking for like, okay, if, if this is already queer, what's the next queerer thing than that, right? Or what's the next most unexpected thing? And each of these characters in some way is, is giving me that. So like there's Dune who's raised by these radical people and you would expect her to like be up in the streets, but you know, I also think of Nina a little bit with Dune where it's like, you're raised by these like folks who are like, here's my radical stance. And you're like, but I'm quiet, you know? Like right. my way of doing my magic is actually gonna be a quieter way of doing magic and that's Dune. And then you have Jizo who's this like spirit baby who's just like, I'm here and working in kind of an angelic way, which my experience of the pandemic because I'm not a parent has also been that like the children in my life all seem kind of angelic and magical and otherworldly to me. Like, I'm like, oh, y'all are being raised in a completely different world. And yeah, they're just like, I'm like, I only want to be with y'all. Like, I just, I'm like, I just want to kick it with the kids now. Like adults don't know what we're doing, <laughs> you know, but yeah, well, anyway, I can interrupt your question. I mean, we'll go turn to page 27. Cause I found a perfectly yes, fine thing from the everything awesome circus. But before we, you just invoked like the kind of sex that Dune and um, Dawood ends up having and having uh -huh. and end up talking about it. Like there has to be this analysis of it, which was hilarious. Where That's he, the lesbian of it. Right. <laughs> it's like, like, like I'm like, when you're here, I'm like, we have our sex and then we have a talk about it. <laughs> So, so he's, you know, he's telling her, listen, I, this was weird for me. I usually have sex with men. And she was like, yeah, I, I have a particular type of woman that I'm into. And, you know, she, he's like, are we homonormative? And she goes, no, we're queer normative. Homonormative is something else, like recreating the heterodynamics, even in gay shit. And he goes, okay, fair professor, queerish, hetero, odd, whatever the fuck. What I'm saying, though, is that for us, the most transgressive or strange behavior would be the hetero experience. So, and I do want to talk about their age difference. Um, and let's do it now before we reread the um, Everything Awesome Circus. Because you, like Octavia in Parable of the Sower, um, you do not deal with, like, at least on the page with, and it's not the first time that Octavia does it. It's not just um, with Baraka. It's also obviously in Fledgling, yeah. uh, where obviously she as a vampire is two or 300 years old, but she has, a, she's in the she body. She shows up as a child. As a yeah, child. Well, what was so interesting to me is that people are reading Dune younger than I, I think of Dune. So I think of Dune as like 23, 24. And, but I'm like, I can understand, I think why people read her differently because she's still living at home. But I also am like, I think people read her younger because 
I think folks, this is again, a Detroit experience that I have all the time where I'm like, all the young people I knew who were in their early twenties were still living at home. <laughs> um, they were all still taking care of parents. Mostly they still needed to work and like figure it out. So there's some class stuff that's happening for me with that. So, but then yeah, Dawood is older, um, like about 15, 20 years older. And I think the- Who's also a national guardsman, which turns yes. her off unbelievably at first. He's just like, um, no. Well, and I loved this because I'm like, I have the experience often of people meeting me and being like, I hear your voice through your podcast. And I think I know you, like, I, I do know you're my friend. I know you. And I'm like, yeah, but do you know this part of me? Do you know this part of me? Do you know this part of me? And, and one I, of the I, things that showed up, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but yeah, one yeah. of the things that now was shocking to me, but getting to know you is getting to know the man that calls me dreamster. <laughs> Exactly. So my father is military for 30 years. Yes. And so part of my, you know, that's both part of what has made me, I think, as radical as I am. And also part of what I can't ever come apart. Like I just last week was down in South Carolina visiting my whole extended family, many of whom are in the military, some of whom are hunters, some of whom are Trump supporters, you know, the, we've got the full range, the American melange, you know, like the whole thing is happening. And so for me, it was really interesting to have someone like Dawood, who's like became a National Guardsman in part because of his queerness. And at the time that he was coming up, he was like, I need something that establishes my manliness and makes it, you know, that I can protect myself in some way because I'm a gay Black poet. And I'm so, you know, just trying to like, you know, every straight line I could find, I kept trying to put a little twist up in it, you know, just yeah. like you think this, but actually this. So when Dune, you know, meets him and she's like, you're not the magical person in the radio. Like this sucks, but I guess we can just have a business relationship. You know, and I just love that part of me that's always trying to, even though I know it's not like that, I'm always like, I'm going to slot you into the place that you'll fit. And then Dawood is like, no, you won't, you know? And I really appreciate, like, Dawood su surprised me. Like, I was writing him and he was like, I kept being like, damn, like, you can kind of get it. And, uh, you know, anyway, I showed it to uh, Alexis DeVoe. Like, she was one of my early readers and she was like, he kind of sexy though. He kind of sexy. Know. I, <laughs> like, like I know, I don't know what happened. I, do I don't know why he's still wearing his camos, but I still liked him, you know? Mm -hmm. And part of why I liked him is some of the way that he does his radio show. So will you read okay. a bit from the Everything Awesome Circus um, up to wherever you'd like on page 27? Page 27. All right. It's Dawood B and the place to flee. And I still believe it is the Everything Awesome Circus. Copyright infringements paid out to my toy box, my people, all people, any people at all. I miss and long for you. I love you. I need you. Where did you go? Where can you be? This place may be a dangerous place, but it is such a beautiful place. There's wild chicory, lavender, sage, rosemary, and dandelion root growing freely everywhere I turn. There are houses to burn and lessons to learn. The skies here will make you a fetishist if nothing has up until this point. I declare this as someone who has enjoyed many a leather-bound tryst with a fist. The heavy hanging clouds that shroud the sunset are pivotal perspectives on the relationship between earth and space. This is the only place where the night bruises the dawn. I am so glad to be here. Let's get it on. <laughs> Go on and on. But you know what's so funny is 
the thing that I haven't figured out how to do when I read him, I'm like, I'm not as good as he is. So like he sings throughout the whole thing. Let's Whoa, get it on. Okay. Like that's how he would do it. And then tell me you love me. Tell me you'll be here in the morning. Let's go pouring and whoring, swirling into the dappled light of an urban night. So he's just like free flow, pulling on well, other things. Anyone who knows you knows that you will break into song at any point. <laughs> and you do, and I'm assuming this may include some of your podcast audience at this point. Oh, yeah. um, and I do, I keep stacking these questions, but I do want to ask you also about personally what it's been like to grow in the public, you know, um, <laughs> but it meaning your profile, but let's just turn to page 35, please. Because I was going to ask you to do something, and I think maybe I could. And this is just one of the songs um, that Dune is kind of one of the things that she does to keep herself company is freestyles these songs. And this is kind of when I would think of you during the pandemic, I did imagine you kind of shuffling around your house singing. I was singing all the time. I know you were. (laughs) And I still do. Now it's my practice, like all day long. That's why I'm like writing musicals and stuff because I'm like, oh, bitch, actually, you are writing songs all the time. You are. Oh, I'm glad to know that. I didn't know that. So that's how did I think too much about how I will die? How does that sound when doing this? Sounds like this. I think too much about how I will die. It's the reverse at the back of my eye. It's the obsession I can't live without. It's the still comfort inside of my doubt. I think too much about how I'll still die, even though I escape every day. All of this practice won't win me the game. I am a dyer and you are the same. And then it goes on and on. Yeah, Yeah. that's beautiful. Thank you. I think Uh, I'm going to release this song at some point. Uh, I like maybe once the all the books are done, then I'll just release a little album of the song snippets, you know, because <laughs> I like well, these. Songs. Of course, this song, this song for like the last part of it. I am the basket and I am the case. I am the only one left in this place. Yeah. And she's really losing it, and she's really singing about it. And um, yeah. But I don't want to know how. I want to know why. That's her question. You know, she's like, I know I'll die. Everyone's going to die. But like, what are we doing here? (laughs) You know? Black Discourse just called this a sultry lullaby for death is a vibe. (laughs) That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Um, Can we go back to this original question I asked you about um, characters? So, Charity didn't have a kid. So I'm I'm not saying that this is Charity, but talk to us a bit about who Charity was for you in particular. I mean, yeah. yeah. So one thing I feel like I I learned, Nayla Hopkinson did this like panel or workshop once and was like, if you're you're going to write in a way that evokes particular people, you have to remix and remix and remix until they're unrecognizable. And that's generally the best practice. And I heard that and I was like, okay, I'm going to try that. But certain people like charity are so distinct that 
I tried remixing and remixing and remixing. And I just kept coming back to like, fuck it. I really want to dress her like Charity dressed. I really want her to feel like Charity felt. So for me, the way Charity like walks into a room, the way Charity changed the, the possibility of what was in happening in a room. She was my collaborator um, in Detroit. We worked on the Detroit Food Justice um, Collaborative together. And Charity was someone who had basically a photographic memory and she understood policy. She understood history. She understood all this stuff. And she walked around. She was <laughs> like African radical tradition, African religious tradition. She was always head to toe in these gorgeous outfits from the continent. She would, I mean, she just, I don't know. She walked into, and she was a big black woman. She was a gorgeous woman and she was smiling. She would be smiling whether she was dressing you down or whether she was helping you up, right? Like it didn't matter what, what was going on. She was like, I'm gonna smile, but I'm gonna curse you out too. You're gonna hear from me. And she- So Detroit, so Detroit. So Detroit. I mean, like, she's just so incredible. And trying to work with her though was always super challenging for me. Cause I was like, I want- here's my spreadsheet and I came up with a proposal and here's the agenda and like, blah, blah. She'd be like, but that's not what's going on right now. We need to get naked right now. We need these people in the streets right now. We need to like, I'm like, sure. But like, we need a plan, you know, like, sure. I was like, sure. Yeah. I mean, for sure. But how do we get there? We need a plan to get the people there. And she's like, I'm just going to go lay down on the ground. And it was these, and she would, and we did, and we danced. And I think the work we did was some of the best work I think I've ever done because we were, because of the dynamic tension between our ways of being. Um, and I think Detroit lost so much when we lost charity. So she was hit by a car while at a conference in New York city and she sustained injury. She had these injuries that she never recovered from. And I got to go visit her in the hospital while she was dying and you know, it's just, she just filled up the whole room. Like it was just like the whole hospital. You it just feel like whatever was contained in charity was so much bigger than her. So comma is like that, right? Like I was like, I want someone who their death doesn't end their impact. Mm -hmm. And you're going to keep finding out more and more and more. Like even in Maroons, we're already learning that comma was really the force behind a lot of the survival of anyone who's still living in the city and black and brown survival in the city. And that's how I feel in Detroit. <laughs> like, I feel like if you're organizing in Detroit right now, you're in the legacy of Charity Hicks. And like, if you're successfully organizing, if you're having impact, if you're changing policy, you're probably moving work that she was rooting in, right? And that she helped shape. So yeah, Charity is a big, 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 big blessing of a person. I don't know if you saw, but um, recently, Kara Page and um, Erica Woodland put out the book Healing Justice Lineages, and they also dedicated a section to charity, and they also like write about her. Um, but yeah, it just it makes me excited to feel like I want I want people to be like, who is this Charity Hicks? <laughs> you know? It was the best way to honor her, and even what you're saying about visiting. And the reason everyone that we're talking about Charity Hooks is because again, comma um, I felt was inspired by, and Adrian's affirming for me that yeah. that was right. And if you read Grievers, you know the very first kind of opening piece of that is Dune actually physically struggling with her mother's body. Um, yes with moving this body from one room to another. And I'm not saying that's a one for one for us bringing, you know, charity back to Detroit from New York after this horrific thing happened or yeah. 
any of that, but it, you know, it was so resonant to me. We should open up for questions. Um, We have 15 minutes left. There is, there's so much hilarious stuff. Page 109, when you're talking about, we had 60 minutes, we want to hear a one hour rejection of the worst crisis of your life. Or like, I love that whole thing that we all lived through around the time that I returned home in 2010, after being in New York for 20 something years, when these people um, were kind of camping out in our city, putting microphones and cameras in our faces and wanting to know what it's like to have been in a destitute city that is now on the comeback because white people moved here. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you for this book, for this offering, for this tribute to my beloved Black city. Um, Peter, how do you want to do questions? Because me and Adrian can probably keep going. Um, but I'm wondering how you want to. Yeah, yeah. I would say maybe uh, give people a minute or two to just kind of post their thoughts. It usually takes a minute or two. Okay. You can continue and then we can glance and see what, you know, beyond um beyond charity i mean i want to ask you if grace lee bog shows up anywhere in the work beyond you know the kind of opening quote prologues but um and and obviously brendan uh, mama vivian mama vivian Vivian. carries like so the part about it that throws people off is that we can't imagine grace being quiet right like we can't like like there's nothing that would ever shut grace up um which i love and when I, Grace was also someone who I got to visit while she was in hospice and I would visit her and sing to her. And she would like, tell me what she wanted me to sing. And she always wanted me to sing like gospel, like black church songs, like his eyes on the sparrow. And she's like, I love that. And no one ever thinks I'm going to love that. And I remember one of the last times I visited her, I was like, Grace, what's on your mind? And she was like, nothing. Mm. And she just like turned and looked out the window. And I was like, oh, I never expected this, but she was just like, I'm done. I'm quiet. ready. Yeah, quiet. Wow. Quiet grace. And so Mama yeah. Vivian, you know, a lot of her her way of being in movement um, evokes grace. But then that quietness at the end, like all of it, Grace loved a screwdriver. She was like, I don't want that stupid insurer. Give me a screwdriver. Like I'm dying. <laughs> like, give me, you know, like, you know, you don't, y'all don't know what this is like. And the experience of having to like change the sheet and all of that, that all of that comes from, from, yeah, what I got to experience with Grace. The other person who looms large in your book, and she comes up in small ways, but of course is Octavia, you know, we've already mentioned her, um, but there's also the go bag, yeah. you know, one of the things that comma kind of gifts to Dune and Dune does sound like my daughter when she's kind of saying that she has all this stuff and it never really came to I'm like you have a solar radio were you about to meet your exactly <laughs> you're gonna be fine because I took care of it and you thought I was being crazy there but um talk to me I mean we bonded as friends on our love well our love for ill and then our love for Octavia Butler um but talk to me about you know Octavia's work and and how it influences obviously this is a post-apocalyptic book in some ways but yeah yeah I mean I feel like the thing that Octavia did that I'm always like in pursuit of is figuring out how to write about the current moment in a way that gives people enough space from it to really think about it right so I'm like you know, a lot of what I'm writing is what we are living through right now. 
Um, but when I started writing, it was like, okay, imagine a future where this is happening. And then like with enough room, I want people to always think about what they would and wouldn't do. So I love the idea of, you know, in the first book, Dune is like going house to house looking for the dead. And I'm like, would I do that? Like under what circumstances would I do that? But I did find myself, I have found myself being much more comfortable being around the dead and being much more comfortable with even roadkill and other things, just being like death. It's, it's happening constantly. It's how everything alive is alive because of the cycle of death. And so I wanted that, that is what Octavia always does to me is I'm like, would I head North? Would I head South? Like, yeah, yeah. Would I try to find people? How would I know who to trust? And in this, I love that when Dune is listening to Dawood, she's like, I need that. That is exactly the, I need to move towards that, whatever that is. And mm -hmm. even though she's initially disappointed, her instincts are not wrong. Dawood is exactly what she needs to move towards. And sometimes the signs that move us towards life are not clear. And sometimes the people who make us want to set boundaries are also, it's like, would I die if I go down that path? Maybe right? The stakes get higher and higher. Um, and with Octavia's work, she wasn't scared to write that people do die. You know, the people you like, the characters you love, you're going to lose some of them. And so all of those felt like ways that I was trying to bring her in, but then the practical. So I just love that like Dune and she's like, Dawood, you're going to join me in doing this very practical work. Like we need to figure out how people know who's dead, who's not dead, what happened to everyone, where they are, what are the boundaries of the city? What, why are things growing? How are we going to protect this city? And the other part that I thought was for me really fun was, you know, Lauren Olamina in the parable of the sower, she has hyper empathy syndrome. She has this thing that makes her function differently from others. And it kind of can feel like a magic, good and bad, but it can feel like a burden. And I wanted to also have Dune is coming into a bunch of magic and she has all this capacity but she's a pragmatic, practical person. So she's not getting swept up in like, ooh, let me just do magic all the time. She's like, okay. <laughs> Something seems to be happening where my dreams rearrange the world. Something mm -hmm. seems to be happening where the altar I'm building in, or the map, she, she doesn't even think of it as an altar, right? Like that's an external view of what she's doing down there. But she's just like, I'm, I'm working on my dad's map. And it seems to also be changing everything that's happening in the real world. And so she's like, how do I just pragmatically do what I need to do? And let's not talk about it, right? The opposite of me. I would have been like, y'all, <laughs> what do you think about the protection wall? <laughs> I did that, I did that, <laughs> you know? She's just like, let's never tell anyone that I did that. And one of the things that's happening for the third book is elders and those who have a little bit more of that capacity are gonna help her <laughs> just, step a little bit more into like, this is what you have. And you're not yeah. that special. Everyone who survived has something special. Like, I think that is also a big part of Octavia's work is like, even if you don't like these motherfuckers, everyone who survived, survived for some reason. And that's what it is. It might just be a reason that's personal to them, right? But they're fighting to stay alive. You don't, you don't accidentally survive these kind of things. You have to make some effort to live. And we're in that time period now where it's like, you have to really make an effort if you want this, you know. Amora asks if, and you've kind of answered this, have you written yourself into the story? Can you feel yourself in everyone or who do you most mm -hmm. identify with? 
Um, and when she asked that question, I'm not going to answer it for you, but one of the things, because she's also taught, Maura talked about liking the way you write your sex scenes. And I thought of Marta. Is that the girl that Duna took? I was like, that's Adrian. At least that's Adrian's outfit. The, this I was like, outfit. that's that. I know. I was like, I'm Marta. I'm already gone. I'm in Miami, babies. <laughs> like I had, <laughs> and I had good breasts and then I went on my way. Yeah. Yes. I mean, masturbating I like, in the car in a tutu. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel like, so, you know, Dune, the archetype for Dune is someone named Shetty, who was also an organizer activist who was in and around the Detroit community and was the first person. So Jenny Lee and Shetty were the first people to pick me up from an airport the first time I came to Detroit. And then we drove somewhere in Ann Arbor and dropped Shetty off. And then Jenny Lee drove me to a Detroit summer retreat. And Shetty was always around. Shetty was always around. Shetty was always visiting. And again, Shetty passed away really early, really wrong. And so Shetty physically, that's Dune to me. That's who oh, I see. Wow. I, think I see Dune. that too. Yes. And okay. wow. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably in all of the characters in some way because I think I have to filter them a little through like my own humanity to get them onto the page. But I do try to be disciplined with giving them sovereignty too you know mm -hmm. so I'm like okay this is coming through me but I'm trying to be a good steward and so that meant like there's a character captain in this who is like an older black man who I love and he's very funny to me but he's like a heteronormative you know he's a little scared of gay people and like all that and I'm like oh I can't not like Delilah. yeah mm -hmm. he's like I'm I miss my wife and y'all seem to be doing something that I recognize and like, I'm going to call you a man and you a woman. And, you know, and, and Dune is very much like, I don't identify with the concept of gender that you want to put on me. Like, you know, to me, doing the due diligence was like letting Captain be wrong, letting him be off and letting it be like, we're not going to get it right. We're not going to correct him the way we do sometimes with our grandparents or whatever. Where we're like, you're just going to be like, wrong and I'm going to still sit at your table and have a sandwich and we'll, we'll do what we can do um, but you gave you put so much poetry in his mouth like the way that he talks is so beautiful and I also want to thank you because what Octavia did to us with Parable of the Talent I'm still getting over right like yeah. you didn't give us horrific like he doesn't do something awful to Jizo when you know, when you think of like 28 Days Later, the awesome yeah. zombie flick that um, Danny and them did with Killian Murphy, the first one, they arrive, they follow a radio signal and they have to fight their way out of like so many like post-apocalyptic movies are incredibly dystopic yes. and you don't go there. And that's such a decision. Yeah. I mean, I will say this is also a little bit of my cynicism as I'm like, I think that we would like for dystopian, I'd like, I think we'd like for the apocalypse to be much more like bombastic and dramatic and like, Ooh, if it was zombies, you know, but in my experience, like, you know, I was on sixth Avenue and 23rd when nine 11 happened. Right. I like, I've, I've been in these different moments in history where I was like at a place and I was like, Oh, that day, nine 11, one of my dear friends was at the conference on racism in, in uh, Durban and mm -hmm. called me and was like, are people rioting in the streets? And I was like, no, 
everyone is slowly walking around covered in dust and crying and trying to figure out like where they're going to find food, right? Like, I'm like, what it actually looks like is um, there's a deflation, right? There's an absence and there's a deflation. And I feel like that in Detroit too, that like what happened in Detroit, even though it's a big dramatic thing to have so much industry leave, to have so much money leave, to have so many people struggle to survive. It's very dramatic. And yet what it feels like is just a slow disappearing, right? Mm -hmm. A slow plucking away and looking around and being like, oh, there's more and more space. There's more and more quiet. There's less and less places to go and things to do. And so then the pandemic affirmed that for me when I was writing for Maroons, I was like, oh yeah, that's, you want people to do all these heroic acts, but folks can't even put a fucking mask on and <laughs> people can't do the heroic acts. Or, or they, they argue anything. about putting a mask on. Or they argue or they get on a plane and take it off and blow on people, right? <laughs> it's like, really, I tend to keep my attention on the best of humanity, but I can't ignore that there's a polar opposite out there at all times. And what we're kind of trying to do is dance in the balance. For this book, I gave myself permission. And I don't want to give too much away because the third book really focuses on this, but I really gave myself permission to let the city work with me. Mm. And that's a theme that I've been doing since writing The River, that I'm like, I feel like Detroit has its own sentience. And I feel like if it had its druthers, there are some people who would not be there or who would be disappeared or who would be absent. And I think that's a part of what's happening here is everyone who doesn't love the city, you you can't survive in the city then. Get the fuck out, go. We don't want yeah. you here. And now who's here? Who's left? And if they're left as spirit or they're left as flesh, they're here and they're safe. And what does that make, what, what becomes possible then? Um, and you know, my biggest terror in life is having to slow down and actually just be in a simple life, even though it's all I want, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I just want to slow down. But, Virgo. <laughs> You know, you look at my schedule and it's like, do you really want that? Um, but I feel like Detroit is the off, you know, the Detroit that I'm writing in here is one where it's like people who are trying their best getting to survive together. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. We never got to um, Sarah, Sarah Miha's question about um, do you remix your characters um, when they've been inspired by someone? What is your process to remix them? When do you know that you've, they've been remixed enough? I think you talked about that a little yeah. bit. I know you have a hard stop at four. Um, I do. I, with this one, I allowed myself to be a little bit more. If you know, you know, if you know, you know. So I feel like the majority of people who are going to read my work were not in Detroit from 2006 to, you know, 2021. And so they won't recognize on site these people. And then people like Nandi, Nandi Como was like, I was reading and I was like, oh, that's that, that, mm, yep, that's who. So you know, I feel like there's a small pocket of people who are going to know everyone that they look at in the book. And that's and it's not just the characters, it's the mapping that you do of the city, this kind of casual way that the Manny Maroon, where you don't even name him when you're like, you have this comic book villain name. I love those <laughs> sneak disses. And well, the- you know, I have to shout out Invincible because, mm-hmm. you know, Ill Weaver is a big part of how I ended up in Detroit, but also as like a walking historian at all times. And so there's so many little asides like that, that I'm like, I got the full Detroit, you know, the version, uh, ill version, which is a three page version. And then 
you know, I was like, and here's, here's a sentence or two. <laughs> of it. Well, the ill version is a 300, I, I tease them. They take people on their Detroit <laughs> tour and it's, I call it the, well, this isn't probably for PhD. Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it's a very depressing tour. <laughs> they'll have them stand in a vacant lot. No, they, they will make you stand in a vacant lot and listen for to 30 it. minutes and tell you what used to be there. But, <laughs> but I also feel, and I'll say this as I run out the door, but I re- to me, every single place we are is thick with what used to be there. Mm. And some of that we know, but a lot of it we don't know. And some places get the blessing. So to me, like Sedona, Arizona or whatever, is like, oh, this is a vortex. I'm like, Detroit is also a vortex. Yes, tell it. People to feel it that way, right? So my hope is that for people who read this book and, and are experiencing Detroit for the first time after that or whatever, that they're like, oh, I know what I'm dealing with. This is actually another kind of vortex and it's a black vortex and it's thick. Oh, I so look forward to the third book. Do you have a title for it? I think it's Ancestors. Okay. So Grievers. Maroons. Maroons. And then Ancestors. Adrian, I love you and I miss you. Love you too. And thank you so much for this conversation. And thank Thank you for everyone who um, tuned in. Thanks, my loves. And thank you, City Lights. Thank you, City Lights. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.